Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the structure of 2 Corinthians is fairly straightforward. There's a brief introduction, followed by three main divisions. In chapters 1 to 7, Paul explains his recent conduct and offers a brief defense of his ministry. In chapters 8 to 9, he calls on them to finish what they've started with respect to the Jerusalem offering. And then finally, in chapters 10 to 13, he vigorously defends his exercise of apostolic authority among them. Obviously then, as we come to chapter 8, we are entering into that middle section having to do with the Jerusalem offering. The Jerusalem offering was a project that Paul conceived of whereby he would collect money from the majority Gentile churches in the eastern Mediterranean region in order to relieve the suffering of poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Arranging the collection and the transport of the funds was a major focus for the Apostle Paul in his third missionary journey. The concept appears to reflect a commitment Paul made to the Jerusalem apostles as recorded in Galatians 2, 9-10. Paul says there, When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do, closed quote. Jerusalem in general was poorer than places like Achaia, Macedonia, and Rome, but the church in Jerusalem was also particularly strained given the large number of pilgrims and widows who chose to retire there. Keep in mind that in the first generation, the only really large, stable church in the Roman Empire was the one in Jerusalem. And so when pilgrims converted, they often made the decision to stay. And when older Christian widows found themselves in need, they migrated toward the largest concentration of believers, which meant migrating to Jerusalem. And that put tremendous strain on the church's resources. And so there was a need for funds to move and circulate within the body of Christ. And Paul was aware of that need and eager to do his part in meeting it. Paul had already given instructions to the Corinthians in terms of their participation. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, he wrote, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me, closed quote. Now, as we've been talking about, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians had been temporarily ruptured, and consequently, the offering project had been put on hold. However, with that relationship now on the mend, the apostle is eager to see their collection efforts resumed, and so he spends the next two chapters encouraging them toward that end. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul wisely begins with an example as opposed to a direct appeal. He mentions how the other churches up in Macedonia have been very eager to participate in this program. The churches in Macedonia would include congregations in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. These churches have been enduring constant persecution since their founding, and yet, despite their own hardships, they were eager to help out with the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And of course, the implication is that the Corinthians should also be eager to help out, perhaps even more eager, given that they haven't been dealing with the same kinds of difficulties as have the Macedonians. Paul says that the Macedonians have been giving, not just according to their means, but actually beyond their means. In fact, Paul implies that he was hesitant to ask them to participate because of their difficulties, but they were eager for the opportunity. He says in verse 5 that they saw this first and foremost as a way of giving to the Lord. And we imagine that they'd been taught what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40. Truly, I say to you, as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, close quote. So when I made them aware of the need, Paul says, they couldn't be stopped from contributing. They immediately perceived in this project an opportunity to give to the Lord. And so, verse 6, we thought it wise to encourage Titus to resume the initiative among you as well. That's the first way Paul motivates them, by making them aware of how eager the Macedonians were to participate. Now, in verse 7, he provides a second motivation. You excel in so many spiritual gifts, he says. You should also be sure to excel in this one. So here he appeals to their desire to excel in every good thing. You'll notice that Paul uses the word grace a lot in this chapter. That is the English translation of the Greek word charis. Murray Harris says helpfully here, By using the word charis of the virtue of giving, grace of giving, he makes it clear that generosity stands alongside faith, speech, knowledge, and love as an expression of divine grace in humans. Already excelling in Christian virtues and gifts of the Spirit, the Corinthians were to make sure they exhibited the grace of liberality as well. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, there's some disagreement among the commentators in terms of how this verse should be understood. Colin Cruz is fairly representative of the majority view. He says here, When he urged the Corinthians to excel in the grace of giving, it was not a command to be obeyed, but an exhortation to take the opportunity to demonstrate the genuineness of their own love and commitment. Quote. However, other commentators make the point that Paul actually does give an explicit command in verse 11. So it isn't that he isn't framing this as obligatory. Rather, 
it is that he doesn't have a specific command from Jesus on this matter, but is rather speaking out of his own authority as an apostle who has been authorized to make specific gospel applications on Jesus' behalf. And this then would be one. According to this interpretation, Paul is saying basically, participation in this project would be appropriate for you as a right response to the grace you have received in Christ. Scott Haffelman takes that approach, saying, far from denying that he is commanding the Corinthians, Paul's qualification in verse 8 demonstrates that what he is saying is his own imperative as an authoritative apostle of Jesus Christ, close quote. I'll leave it to you to decide. However, Haffelman is right that Paul does give an explicit command in verse 11. So he's definitely not putting this out there as something that, you know, they may or may not consider if the mood strikes them. He is saying that it is time for them to put their money where their mouth is. It is time for their faith to work itself out in love. And here is a great opportunity staring them right in the face to do that. So it's time, brothers and sisters, to put up or shut up. That seems to be the sense of things. There is a strong exhortation to move out of the realm of feelings and convictions and into the realm of actions and response. So here is the path, people. Walk ye in it. That seems to be the sense of things. Now, as a further appeal, Paul reminds them of the example of Jesus. He says, beginning in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, Finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now, sometimes we overhear what Paul is saying there in verse 9 as if it proves that Jesus was poor during his earthly life, but that isn't really what Paul is saying. And actually, most scholars suggest that Jesus was better thought of as working class. He was not rich by any stretch, but it appears that his family went up to Jerusalem for all three festivals, which poor people did not do. His father was a carpenter. He himself is called a carpenter. So Jesus was working class, not poor per se. But Paul is saying that he became poor in the sense of leaving behind the riches of heaven. Compared to the glory he had there, he became poor. And certainly no one would argue with that. Douglas Moo says here, the complementary movement by which believers who were poor because of sin implied here become rich spiritually reflects Paul's familiar interchange pattern, according to which Christ becomes what we are so that we might become what he is. Quote. That's the point that Paul is making. Jesus became like us so that we can become like him. He made tremendous sacrifices for our benefit. Now, it is appropriate for us to make sacrifices for the benefit of others. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So here, Paul is providing some reasonable parameters for the encouragement that he has given. He's not asking them to do anything unwise. 
He certainly doesn't want them to become poor in order to alleviate the poverty of the saints in Jerusalem. What sense is there in you impoverishing your children to help out the children in Jerusalem, the children somewhere else? No one's asking you to do that. There's no wisdom in that. What I'm asking you to do, Paul says, is to sacrifice within reasonable limits. The 4th century commentator Ambrosiaster says here, Paul is instructing them to give what they are able, but not to overdo it. He goes on to say, It is true that giving should not cause hardship to the givers. Paul says this in order to persuade people to divide what they have at the time. What is demanded is not more than they ought to keep for themselves, because the Lord says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Closed quote. So obviously, we don't want to solve one problem by creating another problem. We don't want to love our neighbors by being unloving to our children. The Bible tells us to take care of our family members. So the idea here is for the Corinthians to give of their extra in order to supply the lack of the saints in Jerusalem. The goal is for everyone to have enough. Paul references the desert wandering of the people of Israel when God supplied enough manna for each household. And if people tried to gather more than they needed, it would just rot and produce maggots. They were only able to gather enough. And that was a sign and a picture of how things should be in the covenant community. We're not to hoard. We're not to accumulate. But neither are we to impoverish ourselves by giving more than we can and more than we should. Now, does that mean that it's wrong for any Christian to ever have more than his or her family needs to live? Should everyone have exactly the same amount of money in their bank account? Should everyone be able to take the same number of vacation weeks? Is that what Paul is calling for here? John Calvin offers some very wise and balanced pastoral counsel here. He says, I acknowledge indeed that There is not enjoined upon us an equality of such a kind as to make it unlawful for the rich to live in any degree of greater elegance than the poor. But an equality is to be observed thus far, that no one is to be allowed to starve and no one is to hoard his abundance at the expense of defrauding others. Some people just make a ton of money, and that's not a sin in and of itself. But if you hold on to all of that excess, when you see brothers and sisters in Christ around you struggling to put food on the table, that is a sin. God has given you extra, not because he likes you better than the poor brother in the pew next to you. He gave you that extra because he trusted you to distribute it. So distribute it. Share your extra with brothers and sisters who don't have enough through no fault of their own. And we should point that out. Unwise benevolence is criticized in both the Old and New Testaments. Paul will say to the Thessalonians, for example, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, closed quote. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.10. So we're not talking about that. Rather, Paul is saying that given the situation in Jerusalem, their, their economic realities, the unique demands being placed on them, and given how well the folks in Corinth have been doing, relatively speaking, it makes sense for them to participate in this project. It would be wise, appropriate, mature, and fitting for them to make a generous contribution. And so Paul is very thankful for Titus's connection to the Corinthian congregation and for his enthusiasm for this endeavor. And he begins to talk about that now in verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, He is going to you of his own accord. 
With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. In this final paragraph in chapter 8, Paul talks about all the measures that he's put in place to ensure that the offering is collected and delivered in an appropriate manner. Just like it's important today to have multiple ushers depositing the money and multiple tellers counting the money and a plurality of elders overseeing the money, so too Christians back then were mindful that things had to be done in a wise and transparent manner with respect to finances. And so Paul is sending multiple delegates to oversee the collection in Corinth. If he had sent only Titus, then perhaps some might question the legitimacy of the project. Paul is aware that there are opponents out there who are looking to pounce on any suggestion of impropriety. So a plurality of delegates are on their way. Paul asks that they be received and supported in an appropriate manner. He mentions the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching. That's in verse 18. Then in verse 22, he mentions our brother whom we've often tested and found earnest. Now, we don't know the names of either of those individuals, but obviously they were well known to the Corinthians, and Titus was going to introduce them when they arrived. Paul's concern is to commend them and to authorize them as duly appointed messengers. Now look at that phrase in verse 23. He says, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. The Greek word translated there as messengers is actually apostoloi, which of course is normally translated as apostles. We forget sometimes that the word apostles existed before it was taken up by Jesus and applied to the 12 disciples. The word simply means authorized envoy. It was used in political context to refer to envoys sent by the king or governor to negotiate on his behalf. They spoke with his authority. They were ambassadors, basically. So the 12 disciples, and to that we would add Paul as one untimely born, these particular men were authorized envoys of Jesus. And Paul isn't suggesting that these church delegates that we're talking about here are being added to that group or being considered as part of that group. Rather, he's just using the word in its original generic sense. These were authorized delegates of the churches in Macedonia. And that's why most English translations will use the word messengers here as opposed to apostles, because that would probably be confusing. It's helpful for us to know these things, though, because when the conversation about Junia comes up, we need to know that this word can be used in a variety of ways. Paul says in Romans 16, 7, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Close quote. The Greek construction there could also mean they are well known among the apostles, and some suggest that that is what it means. But there's not enough context for us to know for sure. And, and this is a very obscure reference. And, and so some are trying to say that Junia is actually being referred to as a, an apostle 
like Peter, John, James, and Paul. But again, that seems very unlikely. She may also have just been well-known to Peter, James, John, and Paul. Or she could even be being referred to here as simply a church messenger. Or it may be said that she's well-known to the church messengers. We really don't know. All of those are grammatically possible, and it's helpful to know that when people are trying to push one interpretation on you as part of a larger agenda. The term was used in a variety of ways to describe people functioning in a variety of capacities. Here in 2 Corinthians 8, we're talking about messengers, authorized delegates of the churches. They're traveling to Corinth to help with the collection and to ensure that everything is being handled appropriately. Paul wants these people to be received in a worthy manner. Doing that will show that the Corinthians are part of the larger group. It will show that they are connected to the wider body of Christ. And it will show that they're really back on track and ready to move forward in the mission. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 